What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 235 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for Saturday, October 16th, 2021. I am broadcasting in my new office because I felt like it was a good idea to just have a space in my house that's separate from, like, my bedroom and my stuff that I got in there, and so I'm in a whole... Must no- be nice. My, my office and my living room and my bedroom are all in one place. Yeah. So. That's how it was for me for a long-ass time until I finally, you know... Like, literally, dude, I've lived in this house by myself for, like, four... And there's multiple rooms in there, right? Yeah, I've lived in this house by myself for, like, four years. It's a three-bedroom house. I have the master bedroom to myself, and that's what I used to create my YouTube videos, to sleep, to watch uh-huh. movies, to whatever. Um, and then my second room had just kind of my treadmill and some storage stuff and a TV so I can, like, watch video music videos as I run. And then the third room was, like, my retro game man cave fantasy room. That just had like a, a love seat and all my video games and like all my video game consoles and like an old CRTV. Well, I never fucking used that room. It literally just took up space. And I'm like, I could easily rearrange my house and some of my furniture and I could easily turn this into like a little studio for creating my videos and leave everything set up in here. The lights are always set up, the camera's always set up, the mic's always set up. Because usually for the podcast or for a video, I'd have to clamp the mic stand onto the desk. I'd have to set up the mic, plug it in, plug it into the record. It was this huge fucking process. And uh, this just makes things like a thousand times easier. Um, I can even take a picture of myself in the darkness like creep here and post it on our (laughs) our fan group. So you can kind of see what I'm talking about. Uh... Although hopefully it gets like a wide angle shot here. Yeah, I look pretty creepy in this uh, picture because <laughs> I'm uh, I'm just like all I have on are my blue backlights or whatever. I don't have my like I see it like overhead light on because I, I mm-hmm. just I don't like I don't like overhead lighting of any kind. Usually, it's, it's harsh. So I mean, if I had the ability to have better lighting or room for it, I would, but I just don't. So I have to deal with overhead lighting and uh, front lights and. You know, whatever I can work with. I mean, sunlight is normally, like, the best, yeah, but... it's okay. But, uh, yeah, anyway, I'm in this uh, new room, and I feel like uh, a real podcaster, even though it's probably <laughs> a little bit more echoey in here, because there's not a bed, and there's not as much yeah. cloth material. Hopefully I can... Maybe I'll put some sound panels up or something. And you also uh, uh, did a radio appearance... Yeah, I did a little local radio thing on Wednesday, and we had been... So Wednesday was a shit show, because, like, I woke up, I had to get the room, the other room in my house, ready for band practice. We had one band practice before the show. We hadn't played together in, like, weeks, and it sounded good in practice, and it's like, all right, you good with that? Yep, you good with that? Yep, all right, let's, you know, let's pack it up, and then we had to go straight to that interview... And then I had to go straight from the fucking interview to my karaoke gig. And then after the gig, I just went home and was asleep. And then Thursday, pretty much got up, had like an hour to like scratch my ass and eat breakfast. And then we had pretty much had to pack up the van and drive out to Gainesville. Got there and um, 
set everything up and um yeah we played to a total of like i don't know 10 people uh half of the, uh. the or maybe like eight of those people were the other bands um two people actually came out from jacksonville to see us play um you know gainesville is still one of those towns that's like deep in the uh pandemophobia kind of thing they're a lot uh-huh. they're a lot more hardcore about their uh mandates and you know the fucked up thing was on the flyer to the event in capital letters it's like very limited capacity mass must be required and worn at all times must stay six feet apart basically they should have also said no fun is allowed to be had at all like they were like they had it in like bold letters and it was just like dude this is gonna turn off so many people from wanting to go to this event and you know the fucked up thing is a lot of these places just say all that shit online to cover their ass because then when we got there it wasn't anything like that nobody was wearing a mask nobody was observing any of the Uh rules that they said like the the very limited capacity was true though because there was no one there um (laughs) so i think that had something to do with the low attendance i think the fact that it was a thursday show i think the fact that um the bands that were playing there was one local band and they brought their parents um you know the the touring bands brought absolutely zero people and these are bands that i've played with in the past that have come through jacksonville and they brought zero people there as well I don't understand how these bands are able to keep touring like they do with no like their st- yeah. their stats must be shitty when it when like they're presenting themselves to their booking agent like all right so what's your draw I mean how can you lie about that we'd bring nobody I mean, I'm not trying to insult them cuz you know they're great bands and nice people but like on the real they brought nobody they put on great shows they sounded good but like they, there was no draw and I just, I see their itinerary and they're two, three, four weeks booked in all these different yeah. cities. I think, I think it comes down to this in a lot of places. Uh, these venues are getting more and more desperate. So they're like, can you come in and do a show? You can. All right. You're booked. Yeah. You know, it's just that kind of thing. So I, I think it's not necessarily whether or not they draw. I think it's one of those things. It's like, we just need people at the moment. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe they're like, well, shit, we know if we don't do a show, then the venue is going to really be empty. So at least the bands that are playing will drink beers, which a lot yeah. of a lot of them didn't. But God knows alcoholic Josh over here was. <laughs> I was throwing them back after we got done playing. I was like, fuck this show. But, you know, we made some good contacts with the touring band. So, you know, right. who knows? Who knows what will happen with all that? But that's pretty much the uh, most exciting things that have been going on in my life lately. Um, you can join our Facebook fan page by going to Facebook.com. Go to the groups tab and type in Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries and you should see it pop up. I mean, you know, you're pretty smart. I think you'll be able to figure it out. You out there listening. Um, but, yeah, we got some... Me and Mike have been in the mine, the uh, the mine shaft of unsolved mysteries uh, that that was full of gold and diamonds. Uh, we are covered in soot, black black soot. Our, we have the hard hats on. We got the little flashlight on the top of the hard hat, mining for more segments to talk about for you fine people, because that's what you're here for. And um, would you look at that? We were able to cough up two more segments. 
And um, we're going to start off with Mike's pick, which is the case of Doris Smith. Um, I think Mike, I'm guessing he ironically picked this segment. Yeah, I, 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 it was a little bit of uh, ironic judgment. And then on top of that, I also feel that it's kind of interesting with the whole uh, dream aspect, even though the the guy easily could have just made made it up. But I, I just wanted to talk about it because it's an easy one to talk about. And uh, it's one that you can definitely have some fun talking about the reenactment, for instance. Yeah. So uh, on September 16th, 1995, Thomas Wright of Eldon, Missouri, awoke from a disturbing dream so troubling that he sat in bed and prayed. That night, Thomas had a nightmare about his mother, Doris, a deputy sheriff for the Miller County Sheriff's Department. It's a dream that Thomas will never forget. He's quoted here. I could see my mother's squad car. There was a struggle. I saw the person take my mother's gun. It was a woman. I remember the gun moving back and forth, and it looked like my mother really wasn't winning the struggle. She needed help. A gunshot went off. And that was the most disturbing thing about the whole dream, the fact that I didn't know who was shot and why. The only thing I could think of at that point was that there was a possibility that my mother might have been taken away from me. Now, the segment is a part of one of the later seasons, I think, for a lifetime. And they tended to do a lot of things where they would cut around a lot of corners when it comes to the budget. It seems like the budget was cut for the lifetime seasons. So when it comes to these reenactments, they didn't get the best performers. And it's not like the performers were always on their A game previously, but it just seems like they're even less on their A game. You don't even necessarily get a C game most of the time. Like It'd be rare if you get a C game from the reenactors on uh, uh, these later seasons. And this is definitely one of those instances where it's like, not even really average it's just pretty bad and then on top of that they're trying to do something with a filter to make it look more like a dream Uh but it just makes things look ridiculous and makes the really laughable attempts at trying to make this sequence uh tense even just yeah, I mean, absolutely essentially, like, this... Silly. Like, a scene that, you know, if you're a cop driving, like, an inmate to another prison, and then they just, like, jump up from the back seat and start reaching for your gun, I mean, that's a pretty tense moment. Yes. And, I mean, the whole blue filter and the it was just, kind yeah, of was wavy, really you know, effect or whatever, just... Bubble it just take- effect? It was almost like a bubble effect, like, you know, the the whole sort of fisheye lens. Yeah, yeah. At times. It, it takes the whole, like, gravity of the situation and, and it makes it kind of laughable, like, you know, like, you're, you're... A lot of times with Unsolved Mysteries, especially in the earlier seasons, like, I suspended my disbelief a lot was when I was watching the reenactments, and sometimes I forgot that I was watching a reenactment. Yeah, like sometimes I, 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 like my mind kind of like was like, oh, I, this is you know, I'm watching what actually happened, you know, like, I mean, you you knew it was a reenactment in the back of your head, but you were able to suspend your disbelief and actually enjoy it for what it was, and that's why when people like to make the corny uh, like critique of the show about oh the the reenactments were so bad, it's like yeah, some of them weren't great, 
and some of the acting wasn't great, but like for the most part, this show would not have been as successful as it was, and it wouldn't have stayed on the air so long if the reenactment, if all the reenactments were just that horrible, you know. Like, I think a lot of them were very serviceable. I mean, sh- like think of like Rick's Rampage or like the bad, yeah, like Greg Webb. The but a lot of that chief. was from the earlier seasons. Yeah, yeah. When they moved to Lifetime and they they started shooting on video instead of film, uh, that. Just that losing that kind of film grain theatricality took a lot of uh, took a lot of that cinematic quality out of the reenactments and 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 really did make it look a lot more like that you know kind of that rescue nine one one style reenactment or that um, that lifetime movie of the week kind of feel yeah you know which at that point everyone was kind of used to seeing that kind of cheesiness so like when unsolved mystery started doing it i was like ah oh, man they're like you're starting to look just like to, all the other shows to defend rescue 911 though there are some moments where the reenactments i i thought had some good production values and and so on especially when they they do a lot of stunt work um but this was just laughable it was just pretty bad i remember like when i first saw the dream sequence i was just cracking up because i'm just <laughs> like what what the fuck <laughs> and just it didn't help either the, the editing the way that things were cut you know you have the the police woman and the actress she's trying her best but it's really bad and then the the female convict and just grabbing for the gun and they're struggling and it, it just it, it was just it was a struggle in more ways than one <laughs> so um the bond that thomas shared with his mother had always been especially strong he's quoted here a lot of different things have really brought us close to where we're best friends really uh and we can feel each other's hurt i didn't know until later why i had the dream uh the day after thomas's nightmare his mother was transferring a prisoner to a facility four hours away the inmate was serving a one-year sentence for writing bad checks. As they traveled towards Ladonia, Missouri, a series of events took place just as they had in the nightmare. At 6 p.m., the squad car stopped. The convict used her small hands to slip out of her handcuffs and began to attack. That's honestly one of the craziest things about this case to me. It's like this convict just slips her hands out of the handcuffs because her hands are small enough to do that. Well, I mean... Since she wasn't a violent offender, they were probably they were probably giving her some leniency and not. Yeah, like, they weren't tight. They yeah, weren't they weren't tightening. Really, you know, making them tight yeah. as fuck. And she was, you know, a woman. And perhaps uh, Doris put on the cuffs herself, and and you know was trying was trying to be you know like humane as as possible. And uh, you know, when with inmates, you 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 kind of can't do that. You know, it's like you, the second you take your eye off the ball, you know, that's when they strike. And that's what happened so, here. Chaos broke out in the ensuing struggle. Doris had to fight for her gun as well, well as her life, exactly as it played out in Thomas's dream. Uh, I could see my mother's expression. It was almost as if the life had gone from her face. She needed help. Constrained by her seatbelt, Dor- Doris was losing the fight. But that's when the events in reality began to differ from the events in Thomas's dream. Out of nowhere, two men suddenly appeared. They managed to distract Doris's attacker and got her to release her hold on the gun, likely saving Doris's life. Was it just coincidence that the Good Samaritans came by? Or was just some mysterious force at work? Either way, Thomas Wright is grateful. Uh, I think it's just a coincidence. Yeah, totally. 
I, I don't think it's an instance of their guardian angels in human form or anything. Uh, their guardian angels driving a, a four by four carrying a boat on the back. Wow, those are some <laughs> very specific guardian angels. So they like guardian angels. They like to fish. Uh, they at least like to go out on boating ex, uh, excursions. Um, they they like a good uh, a good pickup truck. Uh, that's that's good to know. Didn't know that. So about Thomas Wright is uh, quote, quoted here. He says, "If I wouldn't have prayed, what would have been the outcome of the events? Would these two men have been there to help her? I really think they're responsible for saving my mother's life, and that's true. Um, maybe you know, maybe if you didn't pray, maybe they would not have shown up. But maybe that doesn't have any correlation either. Um, good Samaritans." tend to do a lot of good when the opportunity presents itself. And that was definitely one of those instances. So by the time Doris regained her composure, the two men had driven off. She never had a chance to thank them for their help, but Doris Smith is eternally grateful. See, that's one thing that I think is weird, like, personally. Driving off. Yeah, yeah. just like they help her, and and then they just drive off. Like, Like, why would you do that, like... Why wouldn't you stick around and be like, hey, are you okay? Like, I know. And, and then it's like, well, maybe they themselves had like issues with the law, but then, then why? <laughs> That'd be hilarious. Like, but then why would you help a, a police officer? You know, like, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like nothing, there's no scenario I can think of where. But it would maybe, be. maybe it was just minor issues, like something to do with their license plate or their tags or whatever, and they didn't want to. I mean, I would, I would fucking hope that the cop would be like, "Hey, thank you for saving my life. Oh, I see that you have some expired tags, but you know what? Totally cool. You kind of like saved my life, but uh, you might want to get those taken care of. Exactly. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he's talking about <laughs> dick move. Like they just save her life. <laughs> hey, wait a second. Those tags are expired. All right, buddy. Let me see some identification and proof of uh, registration or whatever <laughs> like okay yeah you're you're getting in the car with the woman you, you all are going to jail now jeez <laughs> like, this lady's a dick no what if they say what if they're a bunch of dumb criminals like they save her but then she checks you know the the pickup and there's like drugs in the pickup okay, okay, fellas. i appreciate what you did but i'm gonna have to call in some backup or since we're going crazy with scenarios here, what if as she was being attacked by a lady, those two men pull up and then also start attacking the police officer <laughs> as well, oh just making it even worse for her, just three times as worse as it was before. They just pull up and they they see her struggling and they're like, "We hate cops, fuck cops." <laughs> oh man. Or <laughs> what if they pull up? And then they start groping the woman who's attacking the police officer. Uh, so then it turns into this weird uh, human centipede of crime. <laughs> oh God. Sexual assault on one end, uh, 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 assault in the middle, and then like the one on the end is just the victim. Yeah, that'd be crazy. Oh, man. So Thomas and his mother would like to thank the people who came to Doris's rescue, but there are very few clues. A person who stopped at the scene took a photo of the men's vehicle, a pre-1995 dark blue Chevy CK pickup truck with tinted windows and an extended cab. It was towing a blue and white boat. 
The two men were driving near Ladonia in northeast Missouri when they jumped out of their truck to help. The event took place. Uh, uh, the event that took place was on Highway 19, about 50 miles from Mark Twain Lake. I'm surprised there uh, wasn't an update for this. Apparently not. Sometimes that happens. A lot of times it happens. The people will watch the yeah. show and they'll be like, you know, hey, that was me. But I meant sometimes it happens where there isn't an update, even with cases like this. Oh, wow. Looks like Doris Smith might have actually commented on this page. Oh. It says, Doris S. Smith, Jamie, you are forgiven. My only hope is that you will know Christ as I know him. I am nothing without him, but everything with him in my life. I have had many miracles in my life. I have been visited by angels on different occasions. I am forever grateful to God and the people he has placed in my life for the times I needed help and encouragement. Oh, so that's the girl then. That's the that's the woman that Jamie is. And then like Jamie commented underneath yeah. this shit. She goes, yeah, she's like, oh. this is Jamie. Just want to say that I'm sorry. I was not on my medicine at the time. God saved both of us. Holy shit. Yeah. If that's true. Yeah, interesting. Oh, I love this, this cynical bastard here, Thomas Davis. There is no such thing as coincidence, chance, random action, or luck. They are illusions. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. This is spiritual law translated into physical law. All of our physical laws are produced this way. Well, I, I don't think that they would have this guy on the show to uh, <laughs> make anyone feel good about anything. Yeah. Wow. I really don't have much else to say except... Uh, Doris is definitely rocking uh, the mullet back uh, when she was a police officer. Yeah. I don't know if she's still rocking that today. It's a very uh, risky hair choice. (laughs) I'm surprised she's still alive. Well, we don't know how old these comments are, so... Actually, we do. Yeah, this is 2019. Uh, All right. She might have died of COVID if she was an anti-vaxxer. Oh! oh yeah, I don't no. give a shit. You should get vaxxed, fucking idiots. <laughs> oh, you're the fucking idiot! You're the Yeah, whatever. So many, ugh, I don't even want to get into that. A bunch of bobcat golf weights now? Yeah. <laughs> Actually! Dude, the... Ah, oh, God. Uh, the, the shit that people send me, like the articles about like all the people who are dying from vaccinations that you, you know the government doesn't want you to know about, are literally from these websites where it's like it, it looks like they're still using HTML to like, <laughs> like JavaScript to code. Like yeah. the website looks like Craigslist basically, and like uh-huh. that's that's where the article came from. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just like okay, yeah. You, you keep listening to the the. The YouTuber who makes video, the 47 year old YouTuber who makes videos in his mom's basement with the tinfoil hat because he gives you the real news, man. This is the shit that the liberal media is too afraid to talk about. So, speaking of conspiracies, yeah, that's a, uh, a good segue. That leads us into our next case, the case of Jeffrey sullivan now you know uh, in, i was just talking about vaccines and the government and all that and i feel like in, in this instance you know i i believe it's fairly safe to trust in the government when it as far as the vaccines go however when it comes to other shit like what we're about to talk about i don't know about trusting the government so i'm not i'm not mr blanket statement trust the government guy over here as we will soon find out 
This is a case from season three, so this is a vintage pick. Um, and it's one that I am surprised that we didn't cover already, but Josh found it, dug pretty deep, uncovered it, and here we are. I think the uh, original title of our podcast, Uncovering Unsolved Mysteries, uh, is is especially applicable now uh, in our later years of doing the podcast because <laughs> we're literally having to uncover segments of Unsolved Mysteries we haven't talked about yet and pray that they're good. So, yeah, this is the case of Jeffrey Sullivan. On September 23rd, 1963, in Waterbury, Connecticut, 28-year-old Jeffrey Sullivan, a former Air Force pilot, prepared to depart on a secret mission. Sherry Sullivan is his daughter. She's quoted as saying, The way my mom relates it, my father was supposed to come back in five days. I don't know if he was nervous, but he gave her his St. Christopher medal, which he wore all the time. He explained to her that this would be his last trip, and not because he wasn't coming back, but because he didn't want to be involved in this type of operation anymore. He took off that morning, and that was the last time she ever saw him. He never came back. Four days later, Jeffrey disappeared somewhere over the Caribbean. Sherry was only seven years old when she lost her father. Years later, she became a private investigator. She said that one of her toughest cases has been uncovering the truth about her father's disappearance. Quote, No one wanted to say he wasn't coming back. As it rolled into the years, it was kind of the thing that just wasn't talked about. No one knew what to say. None of us were allowed to go through a grieving process because as far as we were concerned, he wasn't dead. Jeffrey had earned his Air Force wings in 1957. After receiving an honorable discharge in 1959, he became a freelance commercial pilot. At about that time, Fidel Castro's revolution swept through Cuba. The communist threat was now only 90 miles away from American shores. Once Castro took power, the United States government and several Cuban exile groups launched campaigns to overthrow his regime. It was the shadowy world of these covert operations that may have cost Jeffrey his life. In 1961, a suspected CIA operative named Alex Rourke hired Jeffrey as a pilot for secret missions across Cuba. Their covert actions ranged from distributing anti-Castro leaflets to dropping homemade bombs. At the Bay of Pigs that same year, U.S.-backed Cuban exiles failed in their attempt to invade the island and overthrow Castro. Eighteen months later, Soviet missiles were discovered in Cuba. For seven days, the world was on the brink of nuclear war, according to author William Turner. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, operations against Cuba were still carried on by the U.S. government, but they were trying to be more discreet about it. They did shed some more of the loose cannon operations, and I think Alex Rourke's could have been classified as such. The U.S. government issued a public warning aimed to stop men like Alexander Rourke and Jeffrey Sullivan in their operations against Cuba. Eight days after the warnings were issued, Jeffrey left Connecticut. The next day, he was seen in Fort Lauderdale, Florida with Alex Rourke, because of course he's got to be in Florida, because of course Florida has to be at the center of everything shady that happens ever. There, Jeffrey and Rourke met with two men. One of them was Frank Sturgis, who would become well-known for his role in the Watergate scandal years later. Sturgis who had also been named in the public warning, described their meeting, and they actually interviewed the guy, Sturges. Rourke told me he did buy a B-52 bomber and that he wanted to take the B-52 to Nicaragua. Or B-25? B-25, my bad. 
dyslexia, <laughs> a little dyslexia going on there. Uh, he wanted to take it to Nicaragua, or as some annoying people describe it sometimes, they'll be saying a totally normal English sentence and they'll do this. Uh, he wanted to take the B-25 to Nicaragua. I hate uh, it. I yeah. hate it when uh, people do that shit. It's like, uh, oh man, I didn't know what what country you were talking about until you did the accent that the people in that country would have used, even though you're not, you know, really from there. Or even if you are from there, I mean, if you're speaking English, it's kind of weird to... Because, I mean, even when you're speaking German, like, like say, like, the German word for Arizona is Arizona. So... If I'm speaking German, I would say like gestern fliege ich zu Arizona. I wouldn't say fliege ich zu Arizona. You know, I, I would say it. <laughs> I would say it in the German way because that's how people. You know, anyway, getting on on a rant here. So anyway, <laughs> dude had the B twenty five bomber. This Rourke guy. He wanted to sit down and talk with General Somoza in order to have a base of operations in Nicaragua for bombing missions inside of Cuba. Uh, Sturgis convinced Rourke to meet with the Nicaraguan officials and clear the way. The four men rented an airplane and planned to leave for Nicaragua the following day. That morning, Rourke's wife drove him to Opalaca Airport in Fort Lauderdale. On the way, they picked up another man, according to Jeffrey's daughter, Sherry. Mrs. Rourke didn't know who this gentleman was. He spoke broken English, but she drove both of them to the airport where my father was and dropped them off. The twin-engine plane took off from Fort Lauderdale with Jeffrey, Rourke, and the mysterious stranger. Sturges and his associates stayed behind. Jeffrey's activities over the next 48 hours still cannot be fully explained. According to the FAA investigation, his flight activities were highly unusual. He returned to Fort Lauderdale three times. For some reason, on his third trip to the airport, the plane's landing gear remained up. After Control Tower warned him uh, not to land, Jeffrey did not attempt to return to Fort Lauderdale again. Jeffrey finally landed at North Perry Airport, a a mere 30 miles away from Fort Lauderdale. But he broke, he took a suspiciously long time getting there. What should have been a 20-minute flight had taken nearly five hours. No one knows where the plane was during that time. After refueling, Jeffrey and his passengers took off again around 1.30 p.m. The flight plan listed... Tegapala, Honduras, as their final destination. A little more than two hours later, Sullivan radioed the tower at Miami International Airport. This time, he uh, filed a new flight plan with Tacuman, Panama, as his destination. Search party member Howard described the unusual radio calls. Sullivan attempted to file a flight plan for a destination that was some two hours beyond the normal range of his aircraft. When he was informed of this by the air traffic controller on duty, he then changed his destination. However, this destination was also well beyond the range of the aircraft he was flying. Seven more hours passed with no contact from the plane. Finally, at 10.22 p.m., Sullivan again radioed the Miami Tower. This time, he filed a flight plan for Belize, British Honduras. The FAA says that Sullivan refueled just after midnight in Cozumel, Mexico. This was the last sighting of the plane. Jeffrey and his companions were assumed lost at sea. Despite a massive search, no trace of the plane or its passengers was ever found. More than two decades later, Sherry Sullivan and her attorney petitioned that the government for inf- uh, they petitioned the government for information concerning her father. They have received over 5,000 pages of documentation from 14 federal agencies, including the FBI and the CIA. 
More than a third of the 800 pages received from the FBI were censored. According to Sherry, information found in these documents indicates that at least 400 more pages exist, but were withheld for national security reasons. For Sherry, it was the confirmation she was looking for. In the FBI documents, Sherry found the name Floyd Park. When she finally reached him by phone, Park told Sherry that he had seen her father two days after he had supposedly disappeared. But Sherry explained that she had a hard time getting any further information from him. Floyd Park had indicated that he had seen my father and Alex in the Spanish fellow in Belize. We have not been able to verify the identity of Floyd Park, who he is, and he was uh, involved in and what he was involved in during the 60s. How my father would have known him, why they would have stopped to see him, we weren't really able to get any of those answers from him. Sherry only talked to Park and had not uh, once and not been able to reach him since, but Park did say that her father and Rourke might have taken prisoner in Cuba. According to Sherry, Fidel Castro, from what I've heard, had a bounty on my father and Alex because he knew what they were involved in. He knew they were, go- they were going in and out of his country, so it was a very good possibility they could have ended up in Cuba. In 1986, during her investigation, Sherry spoke with journalist Marty Casey. Marty said that he was in Cuba two years after her father disappeared. I was with two Cuban exiles from Miami, and they met a fellow that they knew from the area. He was working in the compound. He recognized my American accent, even though I was speaking Spanish, and he asked, you know Rorky? And I said, what do you mean, O'Rourke? According to Marty, he asked the man if he was talking about the pilot. He said, no, no, the other guy was with the pilot, the other guy that was with the pilot, Sullivan. And I said, well, how do you know them? And he said, I was in jail here with them two years ago. Another name Sherry found in the FBI documents was Enrique Molina Garcia. Garcia was supposedly a double agent for Castro's government. Sherry believes Garcia was the mysterious third man on the plane and that he tricked her father and Rourke into flying uh, to Cuba. Unconfirmed reports have placed Garcia in Havana years after Sherry's father disappeared. Today, Sherry believes that her father was most likely jailed in Cuba and either died there or was executed. On the 40th anniversary of Jeffrey Sullivan's disappearance, a commemorative grave marker was unveiled in the Veterans uh, Memorial Ceremony in Augusta, Maine. The Veterans Administration is the first and only government agency to officially recognize Jeffrey as missing in action. Sherry Sullivan has not given up hope that she will someday discover her father's fate. This is pretty uh, depressing and uh, a cold, uh, hard truth, but I'm going to share it anyway. Uh, She'll never discover the fate of her father. That'll never happen. Yeah, no. Doubtful. Um. But uh, speaking about this case, I mean, it has everything that you want out of a old school Unsolved Mysteries case. You have the aesthetic, you have the atmosphere, you have the mood, you have a little bit more of a budget. So that's why you have scenes during the reenactment where they're actually shooting uh, a lot of uh, sequences of an actual plane flying around. And uh, it just seems like they were able to get a little bit more to try to recreate the time period. And this is one of those things where it does add a lot more authenticity to things. It makes the, the, the proceedings uh, even more impactful because it just seems like there's more put into it. 
So I, I, I definitely feel this is a really good segment when it comes to the production values. And it also has a lot of intrigue uh, with the with Sullivan and how he knew that this was more than likely his legitimate last flight. He was not coming back. I he didn't want to tell. I don't think he wanted to tell uh, his loved one the, the truth. But uh, there was a lot of unorthodox kind of things that he was doing there, like uh, giving uh, his... Um, what was his uh, wife? Yeah, his wife. Giving his wife his uh, necklace. Right. That's that's not a common thing for someone to do if they if that's a normal everyday thing that they do is they always take their necklace with them. Uh, I've I think I've read up uh, on some things. There are a fair amount of pilots that are legitimately superstitious, and so they would always carry something with them that they feel would bring them good luck. And in this instance, it's, it's the metal. So if it's something that he really does find to be important, it doesn't make a lot of sense if, if he didn't know that there was something that was going to go down, that he would give that away. Yeah, um, I mean, maybe maybe he gave it to her for good luck, but he thought like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this this you know bombing, I guess. Which I mean, like that's crazy that there were like rogue operations that were kind of like on the fringes of the government. Like the government were were like, yeah, we're okay, we're kind of okay with you doing that. I mean, we don't really like Cuba right now, so I mean, if you guys want to like just kind of go at it on your own, like that's cool. I mean, that's not the uh, the the U.S. government has done that all the time in in foreign well, I could, affairs. I could just see them being like, "Hey, you know, we don't really want you to bomb Cuba, but if you want to bomb Cuba, <laughs> you know, we're not going to stop you. Um, <laughs> it's our official position that it's probably not cool to do that. But uh, if you want to, uh, here's a location." Here's some uh, would, targets would be a good uh, place to start bombing. Here's some <laughs> some some points of interest that we would like to see, you know, gone. Um, and then, like, I don't know, like to me, like bombing exercises, it's like you have like a fleet of like bombers that just maybe not back then. Maybe there's just a lot more. Oh no! Think of World War, World War Two. The, well, fu- yeah, the, the, the yeah, Nazis but, fucking pummeled. Uh, yeah, but this isn't England. technically a world war. This is something that's not official. It's under the radar. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's just weird yeah. to me. I'm thinking it would be weird to have a singular bomber that could really do any kind of significant damage, unless you unless you knew like a specific like warehouse or silo or something. Then maybe, <laughs> but. but but even then, it might not be specific targets. It might just be something to try to uh, push somebody out into the open, you know, that kind of thing. Like, I'm trying to figure out what the payload would even be on a B-25. Like, how many bombs does that bitch even carry? And there's just a lot of really suspicious and mysterious stuff in this case. I mean, the whole thing where he's flying around and the landing gear is up. So it has a payload of 3,000 pounds. So 3,000 pounds worth of bombs. Now, how much does a fucking bomb weigh? (laughs) 
Yeah, so he returns to Fort Lauderdale not once, not twice, but three times. And on his third trip to the airport, the landing gear remained up. And yeah, then that you was have, weird. And then, of course, you have uh, the documents. Uh, Sherry uncovers these documents. These over 5,000 pages of documentation from 14 different federal agencies, including the FBI and the CIA. And then more than a third of them were censored. So yeah. he was definitely doing some clandestine underground government operation in Cuba. The Cuban Missile Crisis was going on, and I, they put an immediate stop to things because they're like, we do not want this to escalate any further. Or it happened after the missile crisis was averted, and they're just like, we don't want to start things again, so cut it out. But he had already done so much that there really wasn't a way for them to uh, absolve him of things or kind of get him out of there. And maybe the government knew that Castro wanted him. So they were just like, all right, whatever. If he winds up stuck in Cuba, we don't we're not going to do anything. Because of the politics and everything involving right. the United States and Cuba. And they, ne- you know, know, like once you get, basically if you get caught in another country, you know, as a prisoner of, you know, war or anything like that, yeah. like uh, the the U.S. ain't really going to be big on negotiating with uh, the other country for your release unless you're like a high profile figure yeah. or, you know. Because, like, that one kid, what, in North Korea, he tried to, like, steal, like, a flag or some memento because he was on, a like, a some kind of trip there visiting. Uh-huh. And the fucking North Korean government, like, threw his ass in the gulag, essentially. Yeah. Man, that, that kid was fucked. I don't know what he was thinking. Like, why would you... Man, I would I would be afraid to fart in North Korea. Like I I wouldn't I would never want to visit that country ever. South Korea I would totally visit, but not North Korea. Fuck that. It's like the dark side of the moon over there. No one knows what goes on over that place. Yeah. Uh and then you have a lot of things that coincide with Sullivan being a prisoner in Cuba cuz you have these multiple different witnesses. Um Yes, it could be one of those things where they're not entirely accurate. Maybe they're talking about somebody else. But I, I I, think it's pretty plausible that he was still alive, at least for a time. I don't think he's alive anymore. And because he was probably considered to be MIA by by our government, well, I mean, they, didn't, they didn't even bother trying to go any further so uh, sadly he might have died in a prison or he might have died just in some place in cuba uh and there he's buried in some unmarked grave yeah i mean you know the dude was born in 1935 so no matter how you cut it i mean he's not uh he's he's he would almost be 100 years old now so But that's just that's just kind of you know when it comes to the government when it comes to doing clandestine operations, it, it, I'm not saying that 
it's okay, but it's just it's something that comes with the territory when you do these kind of operations that are either underneath the umbrella of the government or on the fringes. So when you do that kind of stuff and whatever might come to pass that makes things complicated, the government's going to cut ties with you. And they are more than likely going to consider you expendable. Right. I, I you know, I'm, and yeah, he, the dude probably got double crossed and, you know, it was the whole thing. Well, there's that too. Maybe he got sold out to, to Castro. Yeah, probably. I mean, to my knowledge, Castro was not a dumb guy. So, I mean, he, he kind of has finger on the pulse of, what was going on, you know, especially knowing that most people in his country want to defect and they want to leave, you know, and he's like, no, 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 you stay. But, um, all right, so I guess that's pretty much all I have to say about that one. Uh, I'm going to move into, breeze into the Josh Flowers and, uh, why cut, call it a day? Breeze into the Josh Flowers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're going to pollinate them flowers. Sorry to interrupt your currently scheduled programming, but since Eggman insists that all I do is promote my band, I'm going to do just that. Here's some songs, a uh, little taste, little clips from uh, some of our more favorite tracks from my band Dancing With Ghosts. And if you want to hear more, head on over to Spotify, Apple Mu- Music, Google Play, if that's still a thing, uh, YouTube, everywhere, and uh, listen to more. So this is the perks of being a Josh Flower diaries. They were uh, diaries that I did when I was a teenager, all the way up to like I think age twenty four. And um, I've been reading these on the podcast for the last few months, and you guys have enjoyed listening to my uh, my pain and my bitchiness and my revelations and all that. And um, preface it once again by saying if I use any language that you find offensive in these diaries, then you got to take into consideration that this was over a decade ago and I, you know, think differently now and probably don't use those words anymore. So uh, we left off at uh, July, Tuesday, July 20th, 2010. So today, John Wilkes from Red Jumpsuit Apparatus came over to Trey's house and kind of jammed out with us. He's a sick drummer and is a pretty decent vocalist, but apparently the lead singer of Red Jumpsuit called him up and chewed him out for doing too many side projects, so I guess he can't really do the band even though he wants to. And he's supposedly going to, quote, help us out, but I doubt it will bring anything. Still searching for a singer. I've drank every day for a good damn while now. It just always seems to be around me these days, and it's hard to resist because I really enjoy it. I'm smoking like eight or nine cigs these days, which pisses me off. 
I'm going to bed. Damn. I'm going to bed super late, which pisses me off. And I've also not been eating like I want to, which pisses me off because I'm so fucking close to being the weight I want to be. These are my life frustrations right now. So is that eight or nine cigarettes a week, or like that? That's got to be it, right? Not uh, eight or nine a day. No, it was a day. That's what I said on oh, here. Fuck. Damn, I always, I damn. forgot. I forgot that I smoked that much. I always told people like every time I run into people now because I don't smoke anymore. I'm like, yeah, back even when I smoked at my worst, I was only smoking six a day. Well, history is correcting me on this one. <laughs> Eight or nine? Well, Shit. Oh, d- dude, Mike, you got to figure, man. Like lo- most smokers do a whole pack a day. Yeah. I mean, some I was a ha- I was l- a little bit less than a half a pack a day smoker, which some is Some people do double packs. Yeah. Chain smokers. It's not it's not good any way you slice it, but I wasn't as bad as a lot of smokers were, but you can see the beginning of kind of my alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> like start the, the the blossoming of my alcoholism in this post um yeah so yeah i remember that day john wilkes he was the original drummer for red jumpsuit apparatus he played with them when they blew up and um he they all lived in middleburg which is like a 30 minute drive from where i live so i mean if that does anything for anyone uh yeah he knew i think our bass player and um he totally came out and kind of broke down the music industry for us a little bit on like the back end. He was telling us that like the label didn't want anyone in the band to play on the record except for Ronnie, the singer, because obviously he was the singer. Um, they said no one in the band was good enough to play on the actual album. Like, whoa, they weren't musically talented enough to meet <laughs> the standards. So he was pretty much saying that like. Nobody on that first major label record that they released, like no, like none of the actual band members played like on the record. They played live, but they didn't actually track. Because, you know, on the record, like, you got to be precise. Like, that, when that metronome starts clicking, uh-huh. you got to be right on. If it's going to, if a record label is going to put all their advertising dollars behind it, they want it to sound like just like a polished diamond. So, yeah, I mean... Although there are instances, especially if it comes to... When it pertains to a legacy band, like a band that's already really popular and already well-known, and they kind of release their own stuff, sometimes their mixing and and everything is not really uh, sharp like a diamond. Like, sometimes it's, like, rough. Like, some of the... Maiden albums or some of the other stuff where you're just like, Ugh. oh, well, like, see, that's what I love about that, though, is like it's not always like perfect. Yeah. Like there there was uh, any album that Hugh Padgham produced in the 80s, like whether it be Genesis or The Police. I mean, it sounds like they're all in the same room together. And I mean, to be quite honest, there was more of a premium on learning your instrument back then and being good at it. Uh So a lot of these guys from like the 70s and 80s, like they were beasts on their instrument and they had no problems tracking their own instruments. But I feel as time kind of went on and trends changed, uh, no one was trying to learn crazy guitar solos anymore. They were just basically trying to learn like just that low chugging with the drop tuning on the guitar and uh yeah i mean i think a lot of musicians nowadays are a lot sloppier you know there's not as much of a premium on 
mastering your craft like there was back in the uh, back in the good old days. Because I just think in general, uh, you know, traditional rock instruments are falling out of favor with a lot of kids. Yeah, they want to be de- There's some DJs. exceptions. They want to be I rappers. Mean, symphon- some of the symphonic metal bands who that they really emphasize a lot of those complicated right there's always going to be a pocket of underground people who still really care about like the art form and the the intricacies of learning your instrument really well but most bands just get good enough to where they can fart out some notes on stage in front of people and be like yeah look at us you know so i mean it, I think Ghost, from what I've heard, seems it'll be a little different than that. Like he, he, like they didn't even put out an album or even a single for like a couple years until their recent signal uh, single for uh, Halloween Kills. Yeah, that little fucking riff is stuck in my head. That yeah, I like it's yeah. so, they're leaning into that 80s aesthetic big time. yeah I, I i love that song man. it's pretty Hunter's good Moon. it's not it's not like it's not as good as like rats or like square hammer but no but it's good it's still good so uh all right i got one here from uh wednesday january 5th 2011 i'm dating someone new now haven't dated anyone since kayla about a year ago and when i dated kayla we dated for like a, a couple weeks and no what do you su- mean you haven't dated anyone? Wasn't there that other girl Caroline. that you were talking about? Yeah, yeah. Caroline was before Kayla. And no substantial okay. relationship since Caroline almost two years ago. When I was single, I was kind of alone. I was kind of sad. I was kind of needy, to say the least, Josh. A little under-exaggerating uh, oh, under <laughs> there. I was kind of sad. Well, downpla- was downplaying the kind ofs there. Uh, <laughs> But things were okay. I had tiny ups and tiny downs, nothing too serious. Someday I would be stoked about some future prospect. Apparently that's all I said. Okay. Oh, wow, this is a fucking beast. All right, we'll end on this one. (laughs) Oh, this might have been when I got my DUI. Ooh. (laughs) We shall see. The title of this one is Roads Drunk Pissed. Sex, or lack thereof, in quote or uh, parentheses. Fuck. I mean, what the fuck? Where did it all go? Dude, I started out with so much fucking hope. I was given every chance to, to succeed and not fuck up, yet I chose to fuck up. On January 23rd, I was pulled over in Waldo on my way back from Gainesville. I was charged with a DUI. I would like to tell you of my DUI story. I would like to bitch about everything. I want to talk about my lack of sex at the moment. I want to talk about how if relationships were a la carte, then sex would be the only thing I would be filling up on or care to fill up on for that matter. I care so little, yet I care so much about girls and relationships. There is so much I want to talk about, but where do I start? I feel like I have a book of information inside of me right now that is just bursting to get out. I want to bleed black words all over this white screen. Jeez, a little, little future wannabe writer there, a little poetic prose. I want legions of tomes filled to the brim with my babbling brooks of bullshit. I don't uh, know why I feel the need to unload <laughs> all of this. I think it, I, I don't, uh, or what I think it will accomplish. I mean, you could find any number of drunken buffoons at any given house party in some distinguished corner of the back patio just rambling on about what they would do 
if they could or what they should do or what the next big step is and how to get to that step. I guess I'm writing this just so maybe someone or something can realize what it's like to live five minutes in my fucking head. I can't stick to one thought before zapping to another one at lightning speeds. My brain makes connections about things faster than I can process those connections or what they mean. I can see someone and think, she's a girl, she's wearing clothes, so these are the clothes I would have to wear. This is what I will have to look like physically, and these are the things I will have to, then in mid-thought, who the fuck is she? What a bitch. I bet she was abused and had very uninteresting things happen to, next thought, man, I'd be, I'd, I bet it'd feel good to have sex with her. Look at her breasts and shapely ass, next thought. You know, if I ever get anywhere in life, bitches like this will bow at my feet, next thought, but I'm a nobody. My issue with girls at the moment, one, uh, I am limited in what I can do with a girl in the physical world, seeing as I, I am limited with my hardship license. I can't really make midnight romps to the beach a weekly endeavor, nor can I afford to pay for anything. All my money is going to the powers that be. Two, do I really want to go through that again? Honestly, do I really want to get into everything that is involved with a relationship? Spending all this time getting to know the person, caring, or acting like I do, all the social cues and expectations I just cannot handle. I have been in some pretty bad relationships before, and the lessons I've learned is this. It's not fair. It's not supposed to be fair. You are going to get hurt. You are probably misunderstood, and you probably misunderstood what the nature of the entire relationship was in the first place. Three, do I even have room for a girlfriend? What am I doing here? Do I really feel the need to add this to my life? And if so, why? Seriously, take the time to think about why do you need a relationship? Isn't it supposed to be something that organically happens out of love and admiration for something special in your life? And if that's the case, there are certain people that I have special feelings for, but I do not feel the need to make them into a girlfriend. I honestly feel like there is such a thing as a friend zone. And I honestly truly believe it, ki- it kills relationships or what could be a relationship. For me, when I get to a certain point of comfort and friendship with a girl, anything beyond a friendship is dead. For instance, the point that I start making shrewd jokes around the girl, i.e. sex jokes, personal insults, that's when I know it's past the point of redemption. Or maybe it's not. I'm not. Uh, I'm too new at this to act like there is a preset model to my life. Wow. I just had an aha moment. I really need to stop making these grand statements of fact as if they are ingrained in the fucking stone. I do that a lot because I think I am this elevated intellectual who has it all figured out. When I hear myself giving advice to people and making grandiose statements about myself, I just cringe a little bit inside. Wow, look at me using the word cringe in 2011, way before it became super popular to use. (laughs) It's like I'm... Talking like I'm this fucking 80-year-old Harvard-educated psychoanalyst who has spent many years studying and learning the human condition, making me so qualified to listen to your problems and give you solutions. Fun fact is, I change on a minute-to-minute basis. I'll make statements, and then by the next day, recant them. I find something so pure about people who I look down on as dumber than me or uneducated, but yet are able to synthesize all their thoughts and statements into a few honest sentences. So matter-of-fact, so succinct, so non-babbling brook of bullshit. But then you have me, an 80-year-old Jew trapped in a 22-year-old Euro-trash body. There has got to be some redeeming quality about my ability to ramble on and on about meaningless things 
that make no difference one way or the other. Yeah, you started a podcast a few years later, Josh. Of course there was. Um, so about my DUI, I was pulled over coming back from Gainesville. Was I drinking? Yes. How much did you have to drink, Josh? Well, glad you fucking asked, you asshole. Okay, so it started after I left my friend Kayla's house. I got to my buddy Sid's house, and they were having what is known as a LAN party. It's basically when a bunch of nerds get together. <laughs> land parties. <laughs> it's when a bunch of nerds get together and play c- computer games for a really long time. Mind you, I did not know this at the time. So I'm at Sid's house when I see the only girl there. She happens to be okay looking. So I make it a new, that's my new mission, to flirt with her and see where this goes. In parentheses, I put, oh yeah, bro, Gainesville is such a party town. You're going to get laid. Yeah, the fuck right. So that ends up getting me invited to this club called 1984. So I go there and I watch some ska bands. It was like Jackrabbits here. You smoke and drink beer and watch some marginally talented bands. Woohoo, boner kill. I quickly I find that interesting. The the venue is called 1984 and like ska bands. <laughs> yeah, I, well, dude, the place was cool. Actually, before like the retro gaming thing became like this huge thing, like they had Nintendo systems set up and oh. Super Nintendos. Like it was a huh. pretty cool place. Maybe that's why it's called 1984. Yeah, it's just the aesthetic. retro. So I quickly lose track of the only person I knew there, the girl from the party. And was then left alone to drink my PBR and watch these bands play. You know, I was honestly okay with that. I really love watching live music, whether it's shitty or not. At least they're out there, right? So by the end of that, I reconvene with the girl and we talk for a bit. And I tell her, all right, I think I'm uh, heading back to Sid's house. I'm too drunk to drive home. She could give a fuck, so we part ways and it's whatevs. I go back to Sid's house and they are still going strong with this land party. And I say, dude, I think I'm going to crash here. I don't really want to drive home he goes yeah man that's cool as he gazes completely enthralled in what's transpiring behind that damn computer screen uh but we're not going to be done with this land party thing until uh about another two hours and my buddy has already called the bed uh with me but there's a couch i think so at that did you remember what they were playing i do not might have been halo i don't know (laughs) so at this point as i'm opening another beer i say you know what man i think i'm just gonna drive home okay so let's break down the topography of florida you have gainesville here and jacksonville here this is about an hour 20 drive so let's do the math wait two hours annoyed and exhausted with nerve nerd babble in the background or make the pain in the ass drive home but get to sleep in my own bed and already be at home when i awaken the next day Plus, I had just purchased David Cross's new Bigger and Blacker that day, and I was dying to listen to it. It was a comedy album. Did you like it? Uh, it was pretty good. So I make the fateful decision to drive back to Jacksonville. This was like three. This was like link three in a chain of bad decisions that night, but this was the most important link. I leave Sid's house at about 2.30 or 3 a.m. At around 3 or 3.30 a.m., Uh, anyway, I'm approaching the wonderful city of Waldo. Needless to say, I hope the city burns in the pits of hell and all the fat cat pig fucker redneck Bible thumping pieces of shit die in a slow, painful death. All hail America! As I am passing by a median, I notice two black cop cars parked in the grassy median dividing the two roadways. One cop car was facing my lane of traffic, the other cop facing the other lane. Right when I noticed them and uh, passed by them, I knew I was going to get pulled over. 
I had driven through the asshole of Florida at three o'clock in the morning, loaded up with booze in my system, and on top of that, I was apparently, quote, speeding and unable to maintain a single lane. I made it a few yards past the cops to a stop sign. After seeing the cops, I was spooked, so I didn't make a complete stop. Instead, I did a rolling stop into a right turn. By the time I had turned onto my road heading west to Jacksonville, the blue and reds were flashing from my rear view. It was judgment day. Uh, The cop stops me and calls out that I step out of the car with my license out. This was odd because normally the cops approach your window and ask license and registration. I guess the cops in Duper 2 to Skeetledoo Waldo get a little jumpy out there in the blackness of middle fuck USA. So after, I guess, the cop sees that I'm not rolling out of my truck with a semi-automatic or something of some sort, he approaches my truck while I'm standing out by the door and asks the normal facetious question, How are you tonight? Do you know why I pulled you over? And then I guess he smells the booze on my breath and asks me, Have you had, uh, how much have you had to drink tonight? And what do I say? A few, but that was a long time ago, which he proceeds to say, okay, as in, yeah, whatevs, like you totally had much more Z's than that, you big silly head. Why did I make him gay or a valley girl? I don't know. He then proceeds to ask me to submit to a field sobriety test, which, by the way, are not scientific. They are subjective, meaning that it's the dude's opinion based on the results of your performance on whether you're drunk or not. Well, what do you think good old country thought of my performance? Not too much, apparently. I get my ass booked on DUI and got taken to the pokey. The dick ass let me keep my cigarettes and let me park my car in a parking spot at a gas station so my car wouldn't get towed. Ooh, what a nice guy. Did I mention uh, I hope he dies of congestive heart failure? So on my way to the gas station or to the way to the police station, I'm trying to buddy up to the guy. Oh, man, I've always wanted to see how you guys do this stuff. This is so interesting. When does that, did you decide you wanted to be a cock? Ah, what a cocksucker I was. Jesus, what the fuck did I think? Did I think that I was going to be so charming and interesting that he was just going to be like, you know what? Get out of here, you crazy cougat. I didn't know. I had never been in that situation. Uh, I was willing to do whatever it took to get out of there. I've got to finish the rest of this later. I'm all typed out. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I guess I'll, t- I'll I'll leave off on part two for next week. Not much of a cliffhanger, though, because you already... We already know what happened. Well, you yeah. got pulled over. I went to jail and it sucked. And I'm sure I uh, go into more depth about that. Uh, in the next post. All right, guys, that's the end of the podcast. If you like it, you can uh, subscribe to us on Patreon where uh, you get the podcast early. Whenever we do actually make the podcast, you will get it early. Um, It's patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. Once again, that's patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained fucking mysteries. Um, I already told you how to find us on Facebook. And we have YouTube channels. Um, Mike's YouTube channel is youtube.com slash OCP communications. Once again, that is youtube.com slash OCP communications. Uh, Mike's a movie guy. He talks about movies. Mike, what was your last movie or video about? So the last uh, review I did is of a film called the day of the beast. It's a, uh, Spanish horror comedy. Uh, and, uh, before that I reviewed, uh, the three live action, 
Ninja Turtles movies uh, from the 90s, not the more recent ones by Michael Bay. Uh, the best ones, and, in my uh, opinion. Well, at least the first two. Yeah, the first two. The third one was absolute nightmare fuel. <laughs> with the turtles with their her their uh, herpy derpy faces. Yeah, I don't know what happened with the uh, prosthetic or the costuming department with that, but that's pretty <laughs> bad. So, if you're a fan of the turtles, uh, go ahead and check that out. I, I mean, uh, the first film and the second one, especially, and even the third one, I grew up watching a ton as a kid. Oh, me too. Me too. So, all right, well, that's cool. Go go over there, check that out. My YouTube channel is youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts. Once again, that is youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts. You can find my original music on there, but you can also find my commentary about uh, music, albums, little documentaries that I've done, little independent little documentaries that I've done about like the Woodstock festivals or how Apple products are overrated. Um, my last video I did was. Uh, angry video game nerd James Rolfe's band Rex Viper and how bad they suck and how cringy they are. That video's done pretty good for my channel so far. It's at uh, almost 4,000 views, which for my channel, that's a fucking hit in my book. Um, probably going to do a follow-up video to that because apparently the band has played live recently, so I want to watch that video. I don't want to watch it, but I'm going to watch it because <laughs> I think people will want to see my reaction. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. I, I, de- I definitely want to see that reaction for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, the angry video game nerd James Rolfe. Uh, it's not only that that's gotten him some heat. It's also the the plagiarism controversy. Oh, I haven't heard I don't about know that. If you heard about this? No, I haven't. Uh, for Monster Madness, uh, they brought it back called Monster Madness Around the World, and it was a site exclusive. And uh, some fans noticed that the first episode about 28 days later was pretty much plagiarized entirely from a blog post. Really? So James made a video. It was honestly not the best apology. He didn't even post it on his main channel. He posted on his second channel and made it unlisted, which is never a good sign. And he was talking about how we fucked up, blah, 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 blah. We're sorry. Da, 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 da. Uh, I can't do everything myself, blah, 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 I don't have time, because I have a family, and so on. And and at some point, okay, I, uh, it's understandable, but then there's other points where it's like, no, this, this is kind of bullshit. Like, don't tell me you can't write and do your own work for five-minute videos. You know, it's kind of like, I, I, I don't buy that. Uh, especially when it comes to the Monster Madness things. Um, You have people on YouTube who have done everything themselves. Like, there was one guy, the channel was Water Cooler Films, and he used to do every October, he would review 31 horror movies. And it would all be completely 100% from him. He didn't rip off anybody. It didn't go to some blog post. But I mean, it seems like James isn't the one that did it. It was these other people that he employed that did it. But at the same time, how do you not know what's going on? And I mean, you're basically passing the buck on to people that nobody cares about. Like, yeah. people want James's reactions they don't they want your opinion we want your opinion on the monster we don't care about screen wave media's fucking opinions 
No. Like, especially not Justin's. And then on top of that, it, what makes it even more frustrating and sad is that after it was pointed out and you had the apology video, two more videos were found to have plagiarized material. Holy so shit. who knows how much is plagiarized with Monster Madness. And it's just one of those things that's like, okay, one time I'll give you a pass. You learn from it. Move on. Multiple times after you said you're going to fix it, then then it's just like, okay, this is systemic. You need to do something about this. And I, th- I think it's long past the time that James makes a hard decision and just gets rid of screen wave like how I, I don't buy the idea that he can't run the channel in some capacity himself or bring in some of the other people that used to work with him apologize for how things went down or just have a much more uh precise and uh comprehensive uh, hiring process involving who you're going to hire to help you so you don't have a bunch of people that are just essentially trying to do a bunch of shit and uh, take the lazy way out to success uh, on your dime and on your back. I Dude, like, James was, like, one of the only YouTubers that, that like, the big YouTubers that, like, escaped any kind of criticism for, like, the longest time. Like, the mm-hmm. biggest criticism against him was, like, that one episode with that one guy in that break in that room with all those breakaway objects. That was like the biggest controversy for a while. And now it's like this shit with Mike Matei and, and all his weird cringe and um, him leaving the the channel or whatever. And then you got the screen wave people. And now the plagiarism thing, like that's, that's a hard one to come back from because that, yeah. um, Oh, there's this one guy. Uh, he worked for IGN. Um, he had he had just started working there. His name was like Frank or Philip or something. And oh, it was a movie Bob? No, it's no, a no. Guy. He he straight up ripped <laughs> off uh, a review. It was for this game. Um, God, this was a while back. I forget what it was, but yeah, he totally ripped off the review from this smaller YouTuber, like pretty much verbatim, and. Um, he got called out on it and then he tried to do this apology video and everyone just tore into the apology video. Cause like, it was like a shitty apology and um, they pretty much like uh, just trolled his ass off the internet or insulted. He stopped making, cause anytime he'd make a video uh, people would just comment, Oh, who'd you steal this one from? Or, and then, yeah. they, then they found older examples of him plagiarizing from other things. So it's like, yeah, that's, that's when you're having to do that, man. Like that's shitty. Like, like don't do Monster Madness if you can't do it 100. percent Like, just don't do it. Or just do like seven, seven episodes. Yeah, break we it. Make it smaller. Thirty-one episodes. It, if it's the only way for you to be able to do it is to pass it off to these other people to write scripts for you. And that's not even to mention that like people, people only go. People mainly. I shouldn't say only. People mainly go to the Cinemax Massacre shit for the angry video game nerd videos. They don't go really for this other stuff. They might watch it, but like if you look And if they do, they go for James's honest opinions. Right. That's what made Monster Madness successful in the past. Yeah. It makes you question things though. You're like, well, 
Does that mean that other videos are, are potentially suspect? I only, don't know. I, I literally only care about Angry Video Game Nerd and You Know What's Bullshit. Those are the only two yeah. segments that I liked that he did. Um, but yeah, anyway, if if you are out here in the audience and you don't know who <laughs> Cinemasker or Angry Video Game Nerd is, this, this was like 10 minutes of your life you'll never get back. Uh, so anyway, um, yeah. That's the uh, podcast for this week. Sorry, we've just been super fucking busy. I had a show last or this week, and um, we're entering. We're in wedding season now, full force. So a lot of my Saturdays, I have weddings and blah blah blah. And so yeah, we're trying to make, trying to work around our schedules, but you know we're still making it happen. So until until next time, have a good rest of your night. Goodbye. See ya. Oh yeah. Speaking of sound, uh, I got myself quite the sound upgrade for uh, my setup for my home theater. Uh, I decided to splurge a little bit, and I got a new sound bar, which ha- also has a subwoofer. And it has a Dolby Atmos, and it's 3.1 channels. Before, I just had 2.1. It was like just a regular Vizio that was like 150 bucks. So this was... Uh, close to double that, but it was worth it. Like I'm, I'm really happy with it so far. It, it but it did take a while to get set up. It was a little frustrating at first because you turn the TV on, you plug everything in, and then you're like, "Where's the sound?" Like that's so frustrating when that happens. You're like, "What the fuck? It should just work, right? It's just turn it on. Everything should be fine." But you have to find the right thing. You have to use the right cord. You have to find the right setting. Um, but once I got it to work, wow. I mean, I watched the opening uh, club fight from Blade because I have the Blade in 4K. And uh, that blew my socks off because it was like really awesome in terms of like the the sound quality and the different uh, variances of... Uh, the sound levels and the surround sound and everything and the bass and uh yeah i mean i'm definitely gonna have to figure out what the right uh sound levels are for nighttime viewing so i don't disturb anybody (laughs) but you know I'll, i'll figure that out uh one thing that was really uh, even more frustrating though than the sound not working because I was still able to figure that out eventually. Is the fucking remote? 
Like, dear God. Samsung has these remotes that are supposed to be ergonomic, but they're set up in a way that it's just almost impossible to get the damn back of the remote off to put the batteries in. So it's like, push this and pull this and like nothing. I, I'm like straining myself. Nothing's happening. I'm watching videos on YouTube and there's like, just press this and pull it. And no, some people are saying, get in a praying position and put it in between your hands and <laughs> then like use your palm <laughs> to move the thing. No. Try gloves. No. <laughs> Eventually, I just took like a screwdriver and just like lifted up like uh, some of the sides and then finally just jammed it underneath one of them. And then I was finally able to pry it open. Jesus Christ. I even, and before the screwdriver, I had to use a butter knife to lift the other top parts up. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Like, what the fuck? It's a remote. It's the back of a remote. It shouldn't be that hard. That's what you get for ergonomic. They're trying to make it look sleek. And it's just like, Jesus Christ, what all, a design flaw. All I know is, like, it seems like the designs from, like, the 80s and 90s when it came to, like, VCRs and TVs and remotes were so much more intuitive and they had so much more features. It's easy! It's easy, too, just... Pry the back open, like the little clip on the back, yeah. and push it. And bang, bang, there you go. And they now had, it's they all had off. like proper buttons and shit on there. Yeah. Like I, I have this. Uh, so I got this van that for us to tour in or whatever. And on uh -huh. the on the steering wheel, they have all those buttons where you can just do various tasks involving the radio and other things without yeah. having to take your hands off the wheel. And for some reason, there's not a fucking mute button. On the steering wheel for the radio, and <laughs> my car, my Elantra has it, but this van doesn't, and it's so just like a obvious thing to include on a steering wheel is like a mute button if you want to like silence the radio quickly. Like, yeah, I, it's just, just shit like that. It's just like I don't, I don't understand. Well, yeah, on design. these remotes too. Yeah, once you get the batteries in and you get everything working, they are very like complicated because it, it, there's not as many buttons. But now you have to use like multiple combinations of a smaller amount of buttons to get where you want to get. So uh, it just makes things more frustrating on multiple levels. Also, it doesn't help either that it's both. I have a Samsung TV and a Samsung soundbar now, and the remotes are very similar looking. Like there's very there's not really much of a difference. So I, there could easily be a moment where I, I grab the wrong remote, but thankfully they're integrated in a way where I can still use my TV remote to do the volume, but it's not going to work with the input on the soundbar. So I have to do that with the soundbar remote. Needless to say, we got us a lot of B-roll right now. Exactly. For <laughs> sure. But uh, it's been a while since uh, Josh and I chatted because uh, it's been like what a week and a uh, two, two weeks and it's been the uh, it's been it's nearing three weeks. Um, yeah, yeah. Just anytime, <laughs> anytime I'm available to do the podcast, Mike is not. Anytime Mike is available to do the podcast, I am not. I had a show on Thursday in Gainesville, Florida. Um, 